you have your Bibles today, I'm inviting you to join me as we read together Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent you, me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. And then there is a companion text that I would like to draw your attention to this, on this, in this sermon. Leviticus chapter 19, verses one and two. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. In his book, The King Jesus Gospel, Scott McKnight makes this observation. There are huge pockets of contemporary ev evangelicalism where the gospel is understood almost uniquely in terms of four simple yet thin points. God loves you. You are messed up. Jesus died for you. Accept him, and no matter what you do, you can go to heaven. McKnight continues, my contention is not so much that this is wrong, but that it is a pale shadow of what it ought to be. Noted Christian thinker, the late Dallas Willard, discusses this reduction of the gospel to salvation and gives it a potent and damning label. He calls it the gospel of sin management. 
And he states, your system is perfectly designed to yield the result you are getting. Gospels of sin management presume a Christ with no serious work other than redeeming mankind. For most American Christians, the gospel is about getting my sins forgiven so that I can go to heaven when I die. They foster vampire Christians, Willard says, who only want a little blood for their sins, but nothing more to do with Jesus until heaven. In this message today, I want to speak to you on the subject that often gets lost in the maze of contemporary Christian rhetoric, a subject that has been put on the shelf in preference, as I noted in one of my other sermons, for a more user-friendly Christianity. And the subject is the cornerstone of this camp meeting. The subject is holiness. I fear the word holiness has fallen out hard times, more so than the word sin. And just for the record, it seems that sin in the life of the Christian has become acceptable even among many who attend churches historically identified with the message of holiness. It's very interesting to me how words can change meaning. Words used to evolve over hundreds of years, but now it seems to happen from generation to generation. Here's a perfect example. I'm a fan of old black and white movies filmed in the 40s and early 50s. And I hear this word used a lot in those particular movies. It's the word that describes a person's personality or feelings or their demeanor. It's the word gay. You'll even find it in some of our popular Christmas songs, have yourself a merry little Christmas, make the yuletide gay, or deck the halls with boughs of holly. Tis the season to be jolly. Dawn we now our gay apparel. Webster defines the word gay as an adjective that means happy and cheerful. Now it seems it has morphed in, from an adjective into a noun that depicts a lifestyle the Bible clearly condemns. We flinch at the use of certain words. There is a level of tragedy that is attached when a word loses its intended meaning. And when it happens in our biblical vocabulary, words that define how we think and how we talk then our devotion toward God and our understanding of God may become warped around the dysfunction of our vocabulary. Well, in this message, I want to invite you to think deeply, go beyond the surface understanding of the word holiness. Now, here's the proposition for the sermon today. The word holiness helps us step into an understanding of the God that we serve. We serve a holy God. And a biblical understanding of God's holiness is absolutely essential for us. There must be no mistakes when it comes to knowing God in his holiness. No mistakes in understanding how that relates to you and me living a holy life. Why? Because the Bible is clear. It tells us, gives us that great incentive. Be ye holy because... God is holy. And here is the greatest incentive. Without holiness, no one will see God. Let's talk about this for a few minutes. Let's look at the explanation of God's holiness. In the scripture that we read in your, moment, in your hearing a moment ago, God began a 40-year conversation 
with Moses in the Midian desert. And from that moment, Moses became the mouthpiece of God for the people of Israel that would continue until they reached the border of the promised land. The challenge for Moses was to reintroduce Israel to God. Well, who is God? What is his name? Israel, you remember, had been in bondage for 430 years. And when God was speaking with Moses in that desert setting, Moses asked for a definition, a name of God to deliver to the enslaved Israelites. The definition will be different from the one that will be demonstrated to define God to Pharaoh, the leader of the Egyptian people. God knew the Egyptians would need a demonstration of power. The Israelites needed a different definition. Exodus chapter 3, verses 19 and 20 says it like this, But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. But the people of Israel will need to know who God is, not just the demonstration of what he can do. You see, they had been under Egyptian rule for 430 years, as we noted. And they had lost touch with God. Many of them had no concept of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They didn't know who he was. They had never seen his demonstration of power. And now they need to know who this God that Moses is delivering to them, who he really is. Oh, they knew the gods of Egypt. They knew the Egyptians' gods, the God of the sun, Ra, Isis, the goddess of medicine, Hathor, the goddess of love, they know little, if anything, about the God of Abraham. Interestingly, God did not raise up Moses to bring him down into Egypt because the people of Israel one day realized what was going on. They were under this horrific oppression from the Egyptians, so they decided to call out to God. That's not indicated in the scriptures, if you'll study it closely. Yes, God heard them cry out, but he heard them because of their oppression, because of what they were being put through. God simply observed what was going on, and God responded to what he heard. And now God is acting because he heard the cries of his people as a result of their affliction. And God wants them to know who he is. Suppose I go to the Israelites and say, Moses asked, the God of your fathers has sent me. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? You tell them I am that I am. You see, God wants Israel to know who he is. Could it be that God desires the same of us? He doesn't want us just to know about him. He wants us to know who he is. He said, I am. I am who I am. God's name, I am, is a verb of being. Your name, my name, is a noun. God presents himself as an ever-present reality. He is never I was, or I will be, or I might be. He is not partial. If God is holy, and he is, you never add a little bit of God to your life. I wonder sometimes if we actually understand who we have on our hands when we come to him. We see this definition of who he is. The essence of God 
in the I am personifications of Jesus Christ. Do you remember what he said about himself and identified God through himself? He said, I am the bread of life, John chapter 6. He said, I am the light of the world, John chapter 8. He said, I am the door of the sheep, John chapter 10. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd. God, through Jesus, is committed to caring and watching over those who are his. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. God, through Jesus, is the source of all truth and all knowledge. He said, I am that I am. He says, I am not only I am, he says, I am holy. I heard a story of a preacher who was driving through a southern town and came to an intersection in that town. And there, as he waited for his turn to pass through the intersection, he noticed a homemade sign on a post there on the corner of the intersection. The sign had an arrow on it with these words, Holy Ghost Revival, now in progress. And the arrow pointing down the side street. The problem with the sign was this. The word holy was spelled H-O-L-E-Y. I sometimes wonder if the great barrier and a move of God in our lives is in our spelling. We have bought into bad theology. Theology with holes in it. Holy, H-O-L-Y, means lacking nothing. You see, there is nothing that you can Add to God to make him more holy than he already is. There is nothing intrinsically in his nature that if removed would make him a more holy God than he already is. It is incorrect to believe that God can do anything and everything. You might put up your hands at that kind of a statement. The question can be asked, can God do everything? And our immediate thought is, yes, he can. But the answer to that question demands a bold and authoritative answer that is informed by biblical truth. Can God do everything? No. God can't sin. He can't lie. He can't will, think, or speak, or act in ways that are contrary to who and what he is in his own nature. He can't quit being God because he is holy. God is always I am. God's consistency amazes me. Aren't you glad that we do not serve a moody, whimsical God? Aren't you glad that when you approach his throne, no matter how many times you do, that he doesn't look at you and say, oh, it's you again. God is not moody. He is holy. He is I am. Nothing in you alters who he is. He is not a moody God. He's not like that because nothing in you or me alters, I repeat, who he is. God is, I am. He is holy and he is love. The writer John explains God in one simple statement. He says, God is love. First John chapter 4, verse 16, the King James rendering, and we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. It's wonderful to know today that no variable in you varies God's demonstrated love 
for you. God loves us because of who he is, not because of what you nor I can do to try and convince God that he ought to love us. No amount of Bible reading, no amount of prayer, no amount of doing anything that we often attach to the Christian experience can change God's love for us. I used to think when I was young, coming up in a somewhat legalistic spiritual environment, that the more I did, then the more than, that God would love me. I'll just make God love me if it kills me. And if we have that kind of an attitude, it will kill you. But what I do or don't do does not impact how much God loves me. How he feels about me is expressed by the resource of who he is. And he is I am, he is holy, and he is love. But now that we understand who he is, the explanation of God's holiness, what about the expectation of God's holiness? What does God expect of us? God's conversation with Moses regarding Israel continues. And once God got Israel under Moses' leadership out of Israel, he begins working on getting Egypt out of Israel. God provides. And then God begins training Exodus chapter 20 and makes a bold statement in the book of Leviticus, chapter 19, verses 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Oswald Chambers, one of my favorite authors, he says, the majority of us have no ear for anything but ourselves. We cannot hear a thing God says. To be brought into the zone of the call of God is to be profoundly altered. This is a command from God. He speaks to the entire assembly, and it is God's inclusive command. Speak to the entire assembly. You see, it's one thing to realize we serve a God who is I am, who is holy, who is love, but then to be told that I am, you are, to be holy because God is holy, it seems a bit unfair, doesn't it? For God to tell me, you, that we are to be holy because he is holy, that's quite a standard to which he holds us. Well, there are two ways to accomplish something. I remember my elementary school years, my teachers, oh, I can tell you their names even today, Mrs. Smith was my first grade teacher, Miss Smathers, my second grade teacher, Miss Drain, my third grade teacher, Miss Hood, my fourth grade teacher, Miss Holt, my fifth grade teacher, and Miss Trotter, my sixth grade teacher. When we arrived in Salisbury, North Carolina, my father had just accepted the call to pastor a church there in that city. And so I was a new kid in school when I arrived for that fall semester of school. And I didn't have the luxury of choosing my teacher like those who had been around that school for years. And so I was placed in Mrs. Hood class, Mrs. Hood's class. And I will tell you, I didn't like Miss Hood. I don't think I ever saw the woman smile. She had a, a very rigid discipline, high expectations of all the students. And if you didn't do it right, uh, it was sure you were going to stay in after school. I made up my mind early on during that school year that I was going to get through that class. I didn't want to excel necessarily. I just wanted to get through the class. 
just passed my classes so I didn't have to sit under the tyrannical thumb of this fourth grade teacher. And I did. Made C's, few B's every once in a while, but most of the time just average, just to get out of the class. And then I went on through uh, my classes in the fifth grade, and, and I was thankful for the way the Lord blessed there, and thankful that he helped us in those days to get through the fifth grade. And then I got to the sixth grade. Oh, the sixth grade. I met Miss Trotter. And what a wonderful lady she was. She made me want to learn. I just thought the world of this lady. She did everything about the learning experience to make me want to do my best. And I can remember a couple of years ago, I decided I wanted to find out if Miss Trotter was still alive. Oh, after I'd gotten out of her class and gone on through junior high school and senior high school, I can remember getting into college and every once in a while I would go back to see Miss Trotter there at A.T. Allen Elementary School. And I'd walk up to the door and she would say, there's my former student, Lane Lohman. And she would introduce me to the class. And I remember those days. Even after I got out of college, I would stay in touch with Miss Trotter. She meant so much to me. I would send her copies of my song albums and I would call her on the phone. And then as time came and went, I lost touch with Miss Trotter and moved on to Indiana. And then a couple of years ago, as I started to tell you, I was in North Carolina in a revival meeting in Salisbury where I grew up. And so I decided to try and track Miss Trotter down. I went to the last school that I knew she had taught. And then they told me they had no record of her. I went to the school board building there in Salisbury. They had no record of her. They didn't keep those kinds of records. They instructed me to go down to uh, the city building where they would have records of deeds and deaths and that sort of thing. And I walked into that building and a lady approached me from across the counter and said, can I help you? And I said, yes, you can. I said, I'm looking for my sixth grade teacher. She thought that was pretty nice. And she opened her computer, computer and I know the HIPAA rules, you're not supposed to give out so much information, but she looked and she found the Trotter name three times. She found a Mr. Trotter and then another Trotter, a lady and then she found the name of Martha Trotter, my sixth grade teacher. The other two names were her dad and mom. And she said she died in the year 2002. I drove across Salisbury. I went to the funeral home that handled my father and mother's funeral arrangements. And I asked them, can you find out where Miss Martha Trotter might be buried? And they they did that for me, and they told me where she was buried, in the cemetery right across the street from the funeral home. And I drove over to the cemetery, and I walked down the rows of markers, and I found Martha Trotter's burial marker. And I stood there just for a little while and remembered this wonderful lady who made me want to learn. God doesn't look at you and me and say, you're going to be holy or else. You're going to get it done. And if you don't, I'll make you stand at the spiritual blackboard and write, be ye holy a hundred times. No. God says, because of who I am and because I care so much for you, offer so much to you, I want the best for you. That makes me want to love him and be like him. 
He is I am, he is holy, and he is love. Now here's the question for us today. Is this directive, this statement in the Old Testament, as well as in the New Testament, is it a command or is it an invitation? Well, yes, it's both. It is a command because we are to be holy because God is holy. But it's also an invitation to reestablish the kind of covenant relationship that God had with his creation in the Garden of Eden. And this will not happen because of who you are, but because of who God is. You will be holy because of what he will work in you. And what he will work in you will be consistent with his nature. He says, what I will do in you is me. You will be holy because I am your God. He says, you can count on me to work in you that which you cannot work in yourself. Jeremiah explains this in his writing in Jeremiah 31, 33. He says, this is the covenant that I will make with the people of Israel after that time declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. You see, this message of holiness is so vital for us because sooner or later what we are in our hearts will be revealed in what we do with our hands. It never works in reverse. It didn't work for the Pharisees and it doesn't work in legalism. Keep all the rules, obey the law, throw the line, grit your teeth, try harder. That will never change our hearts. You can never make enough rules to make us holy. What you think and how you act is the expression of your heart. Jesus confirmed that principle when he said this in Matthew chapter 12, verse 33. Make a tree good, its fruit will be good. Make a tree bad, its fruit will be bad, for a tree is recognized by its fruit. Now, here's the question. Is holiness optional for you and me? Absolutely not. First Peter chapter 1 reminds us of what Moses told the children of Israel. He said, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. From the time that God spoke those words to Israel in Leviticus, to the time that Peter reiterated those words in his writing, we understand that God, has not changed his mind. We are to be holy because he is holy. Well, that brings us finally to the experience of holiness. There are three points regarding the experience of holiness in the life of the believer. Two questions, one reality. Does God's holiness revealed in me happen all at once, or is it a process? The answer to that question, again, is yes. It is a crisis, and it is a process. I can remember the day it happened in my life. 25 years a Christian, called a minister, pastoring in a holiness church. And I remember the day that I came to terms with my own self-centeredness. Oh, I knew the language. I, I knew the rhetoric of the holiness movement. I'd grown up in it. I'd even preached a few sermons on sanctification and the spiritual life throughout my time in ministry. But personally, I had not really truly experienced what I've talked to you about today. And then that day, in March of 1989, while in my car, God came and revealed so vividly to me that I needed to die to my own self-centeredness. And I did. 
that day I surrendered everything to him and my life took a turn. Wasn't that I wasn't saved. It just was the fact I had not really ever surrendered Lane Loman to him. I yielded my sins to him. I'd given him my sins for forgiveness, but I'd never really given him my life in total. But that day I did, and my life changed. I don't think I'd be standing here today sharing this message with you, the viewing audience, had I not had that experience in my life in March of 1989, because life doesn't always give us what we expect. And over the next 10 years, it was only through and by the grace of God and a surrendered life that I was able to survive what I had to experience in my own life personally. It is a crisis moment as it was for me that day in March of 1989, but it's also been a process because you see, I had to unlearn a lot of self-centered behavior and that continues and will continue, I think, until the day I die of surrendering this to him, that situation to him, that person to him, that temptation to him. There is crisis. And there is process. John Wesley said it so well. He said, certainly sanctification in the proper sense is an instantaneous deliverance from all sin and includes instantaneous power then given always to cleave to God. Yet this sanctification, at least in the lower degrees, does not include a power to never think a useless thought, useless thought nor ever speak a useless word. I myself believe that such a perfection is inconsistent with living in a corruptible body. Paul said it like this. He said, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. How do I deal with the issue of sin then? Once I surrender, is the possibility of sin forever removed? Absolutely not. We never can factor out free will. There are three schools of thought about sin in the life of the believer. There is one school of thought that says you'll never have victory over sin, not until the day you die. And then there is that extreme opposite of that that says once you're saved and sanctified, you could never sin again. But then there is that which is more balanced and more based upon Scripture to where we can reach that point of being forgiven, justified freely by the grace of God, and we are also sanctified. This is the will of God. Your sanctification, the surrender is complete. We presented ourselves a living sacrifice. And we continue to walk in that straight and narrow path. Under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Listening to and responding to the quickenings. The voice of the Holy Spirit. I'm an avid reader. When I was in school, I read the books, The Iliad and the Odyssey by Homer. And in the Odyssey, the story is told of the island of the Cyrenes. This is where we get our word for Cyrene that you hear blaring when a police car is going somewhere or a fire engine is going somewhere. When ships would pass the island of the Cyrenes, those Cyrenes, these beautiful women, would sing a song and entice the sailors to where they would wreck their ships on the rocks of the island of the Cyrenes. And those Cyrenes would pillage and plunder and kill the sailors. There were only two, two ships that successfully navigated past the island of the Cyrenes. One was Ulysses. 
in Iliad, the Iliad by Homer. Ulysses poured wax in his sailor's ear, ears so they could not hear the song of the sirens and then had the sailors chain him to the mast of their ship. And then he told them to yell and scream as they sailed past the island. And they sailed on without incident. But then there was another that successfully navigated past the island of the Cyrenes. It was Jason and the Argonauts. But Jason dealt with the Cyrenes differently. He had a lute player by the name of Orpheus. And when the ship of Jason and the Argonauts neared the island of the Cyrenes, he called upon Orpheus to pull out his lute, put it to his lips, and begin to play music that was louder and more beautiful than what the Cyrenes were singing. So beautiful that the sailors ignored the song of the Cyrenes. The music lute player played so beautifully and magically that the Cyrenes stopped their singing and listened. And they turned to stone. And no one ever was shipwrecked on the island of the Cyrenes again. You say, Lynn, what's that got to do with this message? Simply this. So many deal with sin like Ulysses dealt with sin. Scream and yell and try not to do this or do that or be involved in anything that's compromising. Grit your teeth, shoulder the wheel, do your very best to be holy because God is holy. Holiness is not about fighting off sin with all of your strength. Holiness is when we simply respond to a sweeter melody. It's not so much in hating sin, which we should do, but it's loving the God of holiness with all of our heart, mind, and strength. We fall so much in love with Jesus, we just have no ear for the siren song of sin around us. Oswald Chambers writes this, and I share it in conclusion. No one enters into the experience of entire sanctification without going through a white funeral, the burial of the old self. If there has never been this crisis of death, sanctification is nothing more than a vision. There must be a white funeral, a death that has only one resurrection, a resurrection into the life of Jesus Christ. Nothing can upset such a life. It is one with God for one purpose, to be witness to him. Have you ever come to your last days? Really? You have to come to them often. You have come to them often in sentiment, but have you come to them really? You cannot go to your funeral in excitement or die in excitement. Death means that you stop being. Do you agree with God that you stop being the striving, earnest kind of Christian you have been? We skirt the cemetery and all the time refuse to go to death. It's not striving to go to death. It is dying, baptized into his death. Have you had your white funeral? Or are you sacredly playing the fool with your soul? Is there a place in your life marked as the last day, a place to which the memory goes back with a chastened and extraordinarily grateful remembrance? Yes, it was then at that white funeral that I made an agreement with God. This is the will of God, even your sanctification. When you realize what God's will is, you will enter into sanctification, holiness, as naturally as can be. 
Are you willing to go through that white funeral now? Do you agree with him that this is your last day? The moment of agreement depends on you. Heavenly Father, thank you for your holiness. And the verse of scripture that says that your divine nature can be realized in us. I pray if there's someone watching and listening and they've not had their white funeral, this would be the hour when they would come and they would surrender themselves completely to you and allow you to accomplish in their lives what they cannot accomplish in their own strength. And they would begin to live that kind of life that they can only live through the power and person of the Holy Spirit as they surrender daily to you, Father. I ask it in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.